Listening to Condé Nast Traveler's podcast, Women Who Travel, you will be transported to the ancient ruins of Pompeii, to New York City's most storied neighborhoods, and to the jaw-dropping peaks of Bhutan. It's the best of what you love about traveling, experiencing different people, cultures, and perspectives, all from the comfort of your own home. Each week, join host and global journalist Lali Alikoglu as she shares her own experiences along with those of self-identifying women travelers from all over the globe. How do the bestie comedian pairs of Sheer Zamata and Nicole Byer navigate travel together? What can you realistically expect from your first global solo travel experience? How is dance used as a tool for healing in Indigenous Australian communities? If these questions piqued your interest, pack your bags and go on a journey with women who travel. Available wherever you get your podcasts. As a sophomore in high school, I sit at my home computer. The glow from the screen washes over me. A world map sits open in my browser window. I want to explore what lies outside my home state of Georgia. I'm looking for a new place to find community out from under the shadow of who I've been. I guide the mouse, guide my mind, guide my hope east. Welcome to Soul Curriculum, a special episode of Meditative Story. In this episode, we're inviting back Morgan Harper Nichols to revisit some of the powerful moments and themes from her transformative story. Hopefully, in listening, something special opens up for you too. In her meditative story, Morgan travels abroad for the first time as a young university student and struggles to find her place in a new city. But it's when she's forced to confront the unknown that she forges a sense of self and belonging. And with that, the body relaxed, the body breathing, your senses open, your mind open, meeting the world. Hi there, Morgan. So great to have you on the show, back on the show, I guess. Yes. I'm so excited to be back. I really am. And I understand that you're the busiest person in the world at the moment. I see that you've got a, is it a book of poetry coming out <laughs> <Yes>. next spring? <laughs> it just finished. <laughs> like, just finished sending out those emails. Like, okay, this is the final, 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 final version. So, yes, that's been keeping me very busy, but it also feels very good to say, okay, that was it. It's sent off. <laughs> sure. And you're obviously you're a master of writing and putting imagery around that writing. But when you when you told us your story, that was obviously a very different medium through telling the story. Is that is that something you do typically or you put or was that was that a new experience for you when you recorded with us? It was very new to do that publicly. I am a um passionate, lifelong diarist, a diarist, <laughs> however you say that. I've been keeping a diary or a journal pretty much my entire life. And I'll even record myself sharing my own story. And I'll just leave it alone for like a year or two. 
So I will have moments where I'm like, I don't ever know when I'm going to get to even, share, you know, storytell in this way. So when Meditative Story came, I was like, oh, here's that moment. Here's that moment where I actually get to take some of what I've just been kind of speaking through and working through privately and, you know, into a into a more public space. Hey, that's so cool to hear. I know that so many of the team on our side are really big into journaling and writing diaries and get so much out of it. And I'm so glad for you and I guess for us that being part of the show meant you were able to share some of your more private reflections more publicly in a way that felt safe. Mm-hmm. One of the themes of your story was very much around comfort zones. So if you're comfortable with listening back to excerpts of your story and sharing it again for a second time, that's what we're going to do. I've picked out some of the most intriguing parts, and I'm really excited to explore the themes and ideas behind them with you. Should we go for it? Yes, absolutely. For this first moment, I wanted to go back to an earlier time in your life, when you would dive into the worlds of fantasy books, and maybe even escape some of the less pleasant aspects of the real world around you too. Let's listen. My world in Stone Mountain, Lithonia, Georgia, is small. My town is mostly Black, like me. The grown-ups are kind. They welcome me. But I don't have many friends my own age growing up. I feel isolated. And at this point in my life, I've heard the word autism. It'll be years before I understand how much it explains what I'm going through. Late one afternoon, I sit on the church's carpeted green steps, reading the fantasy epic The Hobbit. The sun filters through the trees. It provides the perfect reading light. Then one boy passes by me and looks down. He says, You're so weird. It catches me off guard how casually he says it, like it's a fact. I hear other kids say, you're different, you're strange. Does everyone think I'm weird? Does everyone think I don't belong? I look back down at my book. Reading it returns me to the world of Bilbo Baggins, a kid who loves his beautiful home but is ready to venture out. He makes friends everywhere through the adventures they embark on together. I want to move through the world like this. I want to stop worrying about my differences. I want to belong. Morgan, you know, listening to you talk made me reflect on my own experience. You know, my parents moved from Sri Lanka to London in the late 60s. And we were born, you know, in London. And when we were really small, though, we would go back to Sri Lanka for holidays. And it was really exciting and free, I guess. But then as a teenager, I became a lot more self-conscious about it. Because although they didn't mean to be hurtful, my cousins there effectively talked to me as if it wasn't my place mm -hmm. and that I didn't belong there as well. I then, to make it worse, projected that feeling back when I was in London so that I mm -hmm. totally felt like I was caught in between two worlds, not belonging in either. And I'm really interested in whether you recognize that feeling at all of being caught in that negative spiral. And do you ever still find yourself in a vortex of questioning and doubting yourself? 
Yes, I do. I do. I actually remember feeling that way the most recently after I shared with my friends that I had been diagnosed with autism. Like, (laughs) I don't know if irrational is the right word, whatever it was, for some naive reason, I just wanted one of my friends to say, oh, me too. I think I'm autistic. And that was strange because I think that was the first time it happened in a sense that, you know, that that kid on the step saying you're weird. Like that was a very clear negative othering. But for me, when I began to share about my diagnosis, that was like, you know, people were supportive. They were kind, empathetic, all the things that you want people to be when you're (laughs) sharing something vulnerable. And then at the same time, but it's like, yeah, but I don't relate. Ugh. So for me, it's like a question of what's my place in the world and constantly going back and forth between, okay, I think I found it. And then something happens and it's like, oh, okay, I've been othered again. Okay, and what about since then? Have you found that connection when it's come to your autism? It, it was actually very, very recently, as like, a few weeks ago that I got an email from a mutual connection of another adult who was diagnosed as an adult like me. And we were able to kind of like have like a a longer email exchange, sharing more details, more personal experience. And that to me felt very authentic and real and felt like, oh, that's what I was looking for. So I'm hoping for more of that. It's still very new. But I think the difference is, and I think this has been a sign to me at least of of hope and of growth in my own life, is that, well, I am hopeful that those people are out there. I do feel that while even if those personal connections haven't been made, I do feel that, okay, there's a possibility that they can be made. You know, I really hope that in hearing your episode, people in our audience will want to connect more to The actions you take in the story are very much, you know, built on strong foundations of you growing into knowing who you are and what you're about and your level of comfort with yourself. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether you could say anything about how you see the relation between being able to accept ourselves for who we are and the feeling of belonging. One of the reasons why I was so excited to share this story is because even though there have been other moments in my life where I feel like I've been on that journey, this particular story, there's so much movement in the story. I'm kind of naturally a low energy person. Like, I'm at home a lot. It takes me a minute to, like, get up and get out and do things. But just because of the way my life was arranged at that time, you know, I'm going from one country to another. I'm using a passport for the first time. I'm walking up and down the street in a country that I've never known or lived in. There's so much movement. And that's important to me because that memory of that movement even still kind of lives within my body. And I think that's why I go back to that story in my memory because I'm like, I tend to be so afraid and overthink like, oh, I'm not going to be accepted. I'm not going to be known. I'm not going to, I don't want to open up too much because if I open up, then, you know, what if people other me again? But I was like, here in this moment in my life, just by moving with the experience of living in a new place, going up and down the street, eating dinner with friends, I organically ended up finding that acceptance. 
that story to me has just remained so special because it was like, wow, look at you just moving through the world, facing all these unknowns, and yet still day by day, slowly but surely, you're finding your place. You're finding that acceptance. Beautifully said, Morgan. Thank you. Okay, next, we'll go to a moment of real challenge from your story. You arrive in Birmingham for university, and after the first month, you need to visit a hair salon. But finding the right one turns out to be a pretty distressing ordeal. In my hometown, a lot of people look like me. I can always find a black salon where someone knows what to do with my hair. Here, I'm worried. I pass the hair salon on Main Street every day on my way to class. We schedule an appointment for that Friday. I step back out into the drizzle, feeling relieved. But on the day of my appointment, the stylist I'm booked with looks up from her client's hair and says, We can't do your hair. Oh, I say, why can't you do my hair? Because it's curly, she says. For a moment, I think about the notion of a stylist who doesn't know how to do curly hair. It's absurd. So I keep trying. It's not unmanageable curls, I say. I can show you how to comb it out. Now I'm offering her solutions. Here's what happens when it's wet. Here's what to do next. When you wash it, you'll see. I've never had to explain myself this way before. She's decided she's not interested. I stumble out into the cold and think, I don't know where to go from here. Walking slowly up the street, I wonder, who can I ask for help? Not my roommates. Even for all of the times back home where I may feel alone or different, I always have at least one grown-up, sometimes my mom, my dad, a professor, a friend, one road that I know will get me back on course. But at this moment, there are no roads. I feel so lonely. Morgan, there's a lot happening here, and it's quite a complex moment. And, you know, I can imagine the frustration you felt. Actually, I can more than imagine it. I basically buzz cut my own hair for 15 years for not dissimilar reasons. So we leave you there at the salon. And like you say, you're missing the support structures around you that you would have turned to in those kinds of moments otherwise. So what did you end up doing next? You know, I remember having to go back to the drawing board and try to find a hair salon. And... I think I remember just typing in a series of things just trying to find a clue because I was like, I don't want that again. Like, I don't want to have to, like, go get on the train and go catch a bus and take a whole day and then I walk in and have the same experience. So I think I ended up typing in, like, African hair salon because I was like, I just want to be sure. But... I ended up finding my way there and just having the exact opposite experience, you know, which was, you're welcome here, like, come on in, we can do your hair. No issues, no issues. (laughs) And this kind of situation where people come across a space where they're made to feel they don't belong, I guess is one sort of gentle way of saying that. And Mm -hmm. yeah, (laughs) do you ever give advice on like, 
how to deal with those kinds of issues today? Yes, yes, I do, and and it probably just comes from my own personality and you know how, how I am in the world. Is just get unapologetic about internet searches <laughs> and finding things. I even do that with with doctor's appointments. You know, I will go through and read reviews and. If I find someone that looks like me in the review, I will read their review. So for me, I find it helpful to say I shouldn't have to do this, but I'm going to spend the extra time looking, asking around. So for me, a lot of it is practical in that sense, but also simultaneously, like, don't shame yourself and don't feel bad for having to do that. Like, that's not your fault. I think that's what's most important to know is like, you're not too complicated for having to go this extra mile, for having to do this extra thing. I think that's the thing. It's like, yeah, look for it, you know, find the thing and also hold space for what you're feeling in that moment. Yeah. And is it possible to use those moments as opportunities to reinforce our identity or find our voice? Or is it all those, they're just too charged, there's too, there's too much happening emotionally? Yeah, I think it's probably just intuitive person to person you know it's like sometimes there are moments where you're just like no I'm going to be a little extra vocal about this like I'm going to you know say something and sometimes it's like okay I'm going to sit with this for a minute so I think that's where you know kind of listening to your body and and slowing down really comes in handy because I feel like I have I have that equal experience Knowing that I'm autistic, I have to manage that as well. There's sometimes where I'll notice something in the world and I'm like, oh, yeah, like this upsets me. I want to see it change. And sometimes I have the capacity to go right into it right away. But sometimes it, it kind of takes a while. And, and I think that both are OK. Yeah, I guess you do what you need to do in the moment, right? Yeah, exactly. All right, Morgan, let's move on to our final scene from your meditative story. This time... You face a moment that really questions your identity and also tests it. Let's listen. As we sit to eat, out of nowhere, one of the English guys probes, Morgan, both you and John are black. How come your skin color is lighter than his? I don't really want to talk about it. But in that moment, something happens. I feel the anger building up inside me. I don't want to back down. I'm a descendant of African enslaved people brought to the plantations in the Americas where white slave owners had inappropriate relationships. I give as many details as I can. As the words spill out of my mouth, I feel myself becoming a different person. The Morgan who stood quiet on the church steps who held back in the hair salon, who was made to feel like she didn't belong for being black, autistic, a woman, no longer cares what you have to say about her. The entire room goes quiet once I'm done. I glance at John, my friend from Nigeria, and he nods knowingly. We sit down, we eat our food. I feel proud. Like I can sit more comfortably at the table. Sitting in that room, 
I'm learning that being so far away makes me feel more like who I am. And with that new and stronger sense, the more I express myself, the more I feel like I belong, no matter where I go next. So in this moment, you're again forced to confront the fact that you're othered in a particular space. And I'm really interested in, in what you say near there at the end and how this was your first sort of real travel. You know, as if you had to get a passport, it was a, it was a, mm-hmm. it was a big sort of change geographically for you. And what role do you think that the distance from your life in America played in giving you that strength to stand up for yourself? It was a moment of clarification of who I was because... Prior to going to England, I always saw myself as Black first, being African-American first. And then now that I have this passport, it's like, oh, in this moment, I'm an American first. And I mean, the only thing I feel in that moment is just, oh, this is new. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't tend to, to see myself in that way. And I think that that's where it's, you know... Where, you know, why I just believe telling stories are so important because that's not every Black American's experience. It's just, you know, I was a kid who grew up in the town Stone Mountain, Georgia, where the KKK decided to rebirth itself at the turn of the century. And I was a little kid who loved history. And I'm like, oh, what's this about? What's this about? So, you know, I was very aware of that. I'm kind of in a different category of American. Then it became, okay, so... Yeah, I am an American, but then there is this other part of me, African-American, American, African, African-American. I just, I hadn't spent tons of time having to think about all that. <laughs> just, you know, for, for lack of better words, back home, it was just like more black and white to me. And then it was like now being in this new setting, I was just seeing myself in a new way and trying to find language for it in real time. And just interesting, actually, in this sort of this little dynamic it hints to with with you and John, and how it's a two person community in that interaction, mm-hmm. um, but how allowing identity be understood and seen mm-hmm. and given the full appropriate context that gives them a support structure. Did you feel that? Yeah. So growing up, I remember my parents telling me specifically my dad about what we often call the nod. And the mm. nod is like when you see another black person in public, we kind of look at each other and nod, like I see you. But what I find so fascinating, I never thought about it this way before till you just asked that question, is that it's often unspoken. There's no words, really. It's a nonverbal thing that happens. But you know it was real. You know it was an authentic moment a real moment of connection, but you don't have to go up to each other and speak to each other for that moment to be as potent as it can be. And I think that that was similar in a way, like a like kind of like an international version of that I had with John. It was like, okay, there's a lot about our experiences that are different. But in that moment, I know why you said that. I'm, I'm glad that you had space and, you know, kind of like a cosign of like, I see you, I see you. And then that's kind of it. Hmm. So, Morgan, I just want to close up by going back to your day job, if that's okay. 
The way I understand it is that you use poetry, words, and incredible art to help people feel seen and find reflective space in their lives. I'm interested. What is it about poetry that's so effective in helping us feel seen? Yes, yes. So, you know, my autism diagnosis really brought a lot of clarity to me as to why I'm so drawn to poetry and making art and why I keep returning to it over and over and over again. And that is, I kind of think of every, a lot of things in space, even words, when I'm getting ready to form a sentence, it kind of feels like grabbing from different places to put them in line to be able to speak. But it feels like my brain is rearranging things to try to make sense of it. So I find a lot of comfort in making art because that's a space where that experience becomes beautiful. It can create a sense of, wow, there, there's room for you to be seen as you are. And I find a sense of belonging in that. So that's why I kind of return to it again and again on a personal level. But just the more I interact with people, I'm like, okay, I think there's a lot of people experiencing that. Like in one way or another, everyone's experiencing some level of uncertainty or chaos. And I just want to show like, okay, well, here's a way where all these things we're trying to make sense of, we can hold space for them and we can breathe amidst it all. And I think that art is just one way that we can do that. Beautifully said. Thank you, Morgan. And thank you so much for being on the show. I really look forward to following your creativity and your work. It's a gift to the world. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed being able to have this conversation today. With that, I'm going to sign off. I hope you enjoy this episode. We'd love for you to share your thoughts with us about the episode. You can find us on all your social media platforms via our handle at Meditative Story, or you can email us at hello at meditativestory.com. Thank you so much for listening. On behalf of the team at Meditative Story, thank you for spending time with us today. We love creating the show for you. And if the show serves you in a meaningful way, we'd love to hear from you. Would you take a minute right now to write us a review in your podcast app? When you leave a review, it really inspires our team. And we're a group who derives so much energy from understanding how meditative story impacts you. It's also a way for you to pay it forward by helping others discover the show. So if leaving a review speaks to you today, we'd really appreciate it. Meditative Story is a Wait What original. Our executive producers are Darren Triff, June Cohen and Rebecca Grierson. Jay Punjabi is our supervising producer. The series is produced by Dorothy Abrams and Timothy Lou Lee. Original music and sound designed by Ryan Holiday. Our script writers are Hannah Brencher, Peter Keckley, Marie McCoy-Thompson, and Florence Williams. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Anna Pizzino, Sarah Tata, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Sammy Oputa, Leah Serametis, Colin Howarth, Chineme Ezequena, Charlie Menezes, and Adam Heiner. And I'm Rohan Gunatilaka, creator of the Buddhify Meditation app, and your host. 
visit meditativestory.com to find the transcript for this episode. 